Let us pray together. You are faithful, God. You have left us your word and your spirit to take that word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. We pray now that you use it in our lives to transform us by the renewing of our minds. As your word says that those who live according to the Holy Spirit have their minds set on the things the Spirit desires, the things of the Spirit. So Father, take your word and apply it to our lives. Show us both individually and corporately not only its meaning, not only its information, but its formation, its cultivation in our lives of Christ-likeness. Your word is useful, Paul wrote to Timothy, for teaching, for training, for rebuke, for correcting us, and training us. In other words, it is useful, it has an intention, and that is to make us godly, inside and out. So illumine our minds and our hearts, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles, if not, the words will be projected up on the wall or they're printed in your bulletin. We are looking at Psalm 51 this morning. So let's turn our attention to the text of Scripture upon which the teaching is based this morning. And it's a prayer of King David's who says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, what we're doing this summer is we're looking at the Psalms, the Psalms of the prayer book, the worship book of the church of the Old Testament, the people of Israel. They seek, and we're looking at, we're basically approaching the psalm, seeking how can we cultivate communion with God? And how can we cultivate communion with God through the various ups and downs of day-to-day life? If you remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you shall know God. And if you recall, know is not just an informative word. Know is to know personally, to know existentially, to know really in our whole being, mind, heart, will, soul, affections, every ounce of us. And Jesus says, this is life. The question is, how do we cultivate 
that life, in our day-to-day relating to God, communing with God, communing with the God who is love and who is multidimensional, complex love. John Calvin recognized that the Psalms express every emotion known to human experience. Listen to the words of the great reformer. Calvin wrote, what various and resplendent riches are obtained in this treasure. It were difficult to find words to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Calvin says, look at the Psalms and you're looking at a mirror of your own soul and the various expressions. And so our approach this summer is to look at the various genres of the psalm. Now, what is a genre? A genre is that class of texts that share different traits. They could be formal traits like structure or an expression or tone or content or emotional tone. And it's important that we recognize this because what's happening here is that the writer, be it a David, be it an Asaph, be it a Sons of Korah, whoever's writing the Psalms, what they're doing is they're giving us as the reader a reading strategy. See, the psalmist is saying, by the tone, by the structure, by what I'm putting together, because remember, Psalms are poetry. They're expressing the heart. And as such, they're expressing a mood. And the psalmist is saying, here's a clue how to interpret this piece of poetic literature that I'm giving you. So, for example, when the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, that is a jubilant tone. That's a hymn. It's a hymn of praise. Life's going well for the psalmist. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann called those psalms, and there are many, Andrew preached on one last week, Psalm 113. He called those psalms of orientation. The dominant tone is one of praise and of celebration. Then you have another class of psalms. Think of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's Psalm 13. What's the tone behind that? That is a lament. Walter Brueggemann called those psalms of disorientation because they're written by those who are experiencing some sort of distress. They are songs we sing when life is troubled, when life isn't going well. They can include complaints, confessions, like what we have here is a confession. It's what's called one of the penitential psalms. They can be offered for or by or to an individual or for the community. They often include a resolution which reorients them Sometimes they end without a resolution. Think about Psalm 88, for instance, which concludes with the words, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. End of the psalm. In fact, many times I read the psalm and I turn the page. Isn't there more? (laughs) My companions are darkness. The end. Uh, Excuse me. (laughs) I don't feel like ending there. But we don't always get resolution in real life, do we? Sometimes there's a breakup, and that's it. Sometimes there's an illness, and that's it. Unless you put your hope somewhere else. Remember the psalm, the Old Testament. They're written looking forward. Every psalm is looking, for, looking to an ending, an ending that is only found in Jesus Christ. Every psalm is an unfinished story, like the rest of the Old Testament, that has as its finish only the fulfillment. As we sang earlier, nothing but the blood 
of Jesus. There's the fulfillment of all the foreshadowing, all the pictures, all the images, all the drama, all the prophecies, and yes, all the poetry of the scriptures. Now this morning we're looking and exploring Psalm 51. Now I wish I would have printed for you the subtitle because the subtitle is actually very important to this particular psalm. It is the confession and the repentance of King David. Thus the title of the psalm is Cultivating Brokenness. Sometimes we cultivate praise and celebration. Sometimes we have to learn how to cultivate the brokenness of life. And the subtitle is important because it gives us the historical circumstances behind this particular psalm. In this case, it says, when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, for those of you who know this sordid affair, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And one of the things we have to recognize, what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is the people of God, David sent his men out to war. So they're out to war, and David stayed back. And he stayed back, and he happened to look across the roof, and he found a young lady. Her name was Bathsheba. And one important detail for this particular story, Bathsheba was not his wife. So this was very inappropriate, very sinful. He went in, and he stole Bathsheba. And then he arranged for Bathsheba's husband at the time, a man and his commander, and a very good friend of David's, Uriah. He arranged for him to go and get killed. And then Nathan, the prophet, came in and told David a story. And told him, and you want to talk about a skillful prophet. One who didn't just say, David, you blew it. David, you messed up. But he told David a story because naturally we're storytellers. Our lives are weaved by stories. So Nathan tells David a story of a rich man and a poor man. And he goes and he does something that he knows is going to incite the passions and the anger of David. It's a story of injustice, and David is riling at the injustice in this particular situation. And then Nathan, wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, says to David, you are that man. And that leads, as Michael Wilcox says of this particular psalm, he says, only the living word of God through the prophet Nathan could bring this sinner to repentance. No Bible story describes the hearts convicting quite like 2 Samuel 12, and no Bible prayer expresses the lips confessing quite like Psalm 51. You have the conviction and then the repentance over sin. And it's very important for us to realize as we begin to enter into the details of this psalm that even though the historical circumstances are given in the title, they're not given, they're not referred to specifically as you work through the psalm. And that's important because it gives this psalm a universal application. It means this can be used by anyone, the people of God, believers anywhere and everywhere who find themselves in a similar, if not identical, situation. It means that even though you may not have committed adultery with a woman with the particular name of Bathsheba, And even though you may not murdered a particular man in a particular time by the name of Uriah, this psalm can still serve as a model, as a template for our repentance. So what do we learn about true repentance from this particular psalm? We learn three things. We learn that true repentance is grounded in God's character. True repentance is brutally honest. And true repentance restores life. Rooted in God's character, 
brutally honest, and is completely restorative, which means repentance, even if you take this, and I want to say this at the outset. If we believed repentance, as the catechism talks about, is a repentance unto life, that repentance in and of itself is a gift of God's grace, maybe we would see repentance as more normal in our Christian life. In other words, repentance doesn't have to come just after adultery and murder. Repentance can come when you're bored at worship, can come when you're kind of dozing off at prayer, can come when you're a little lazy or lackadaisical in your spiritual walk with God. You know, just to quote two reformers this morning, I'm going to have a heavy reformational theme this morning. I quoted Calvin, let's get his good buddy Luther in there for a second. This year we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation, when Luther took those 95 theses and he nailed them to the door at Wittenberg, the first thesis said that when Jesus Christ said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant for repentance to be a way of life. Do you hear that? See, we all get caught up in the theology of the Reformation. How about the normal theology of the normal, renewed, ongoing, powerful Christian life that is marked by repentance that leads to renewal? Is your life characterized and marked by repentance that if somebody were to ask you when was the last time you repented, it would be normal and natural for you to go, well, now? Is there ever a time you don't have to turn from sin and self to Christ and life? I mean, when the law is summed up as love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your affections, every ounce of your being, every ounce of strength, is there ever a time we shouldn't be saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love? Part of the thesis behind this text is repentance needs to be normal. Not, oh, I blew it, big adultery and murder, I better repent now. But dry worship, not caring about godliness, really not caring whether I love or not, we ought to be repenting all the time. Why don't we? Well, I think the first point gives us a clue. I think we don't always view repentance as grounded and rooted in the character of God. See, it begins with good news. What is the character of God? David begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And here's what David's doing. First, some of the poetical structure. This is what Hebrew scholars called a chiasm. And a chiasm means that it makes a statement. And when Hebrew poets, when they do this, they'll call that statement A, and then it's followed by another statement. That statement is called B. So have mercy on me, O God, is A. According to your steadfast love is B. Then they'll say according to your abundant mercy kind of repeats. It's parallel with the B line. So they call that B prime. And then the last line, blot out my transgressions, goes back to the first line of have mercy on me. And they say the meaning of that structure is that the end of it, kind of what wraps it around, the A and the A prime, have mercy on me, O God, and blot out my transgressions, are David's appeal to God. And the second lines, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, they are the basis 
for that appeal. So what is David doing? He is pleading with God, blot out my transgressions. And he's basing it in the goodness, the steadfast love, and the mercy of God. He's beseeching God to have a merciful heart and a merciful attitude toward him. And then requests a specific action based on that heart. The action for God to blot out his transgressions. Why? Because he is love. Because he has abundant mercy. Because he's filled with compassion. In other words, have a merciful heart towards me and express it, evidence it, demonstrate it by wiping away, blotting out my transgressions. The plea is grounded in the character of God. And the character of God, you'll see this word come up again and again as we study the Psalms. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. What David is doing is he's saying, God, according to who you are. David's not saying because I'm worthy. He knows he's unworthy. But yet he still, because of God's covenant, because of God's hesed, because of the richness of this steadfast love and abundant mercy, David knows he's safe. He knows he belongs. See, look at this. He knows he blew it. This entire psalm, we're going to see this as we go through it. David is taking full responsibility on himself. There is no self-justification here. There's no blame shifting. There's no saying it's somebody else's fault. He is owning this completely. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, by the way, Bathsheba was cute. Or, by the way, you know, Uriah had it coming. He owns it completely. He takes full responsibility himself. And yet, because he knows he belongs, because God's covenant is one where God embraces people through his own faithfulness, by grace. And God's covenant gives David that safety. It doesn't keep David where he is, and it doesn't keep us where we are, but safety is a prerequisite to change. The New Testament illustration of this is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the prodigal kind of blew it big time, don't you think? He asked his father for his inheritance, oh, by the way, when his father was still alive. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work normally. In a sense, that's tantamount to wishing his father dead. His father gives him the inheritance, and what does he do? He completely blows it in wild living. And then it says, the text says, he begins to come to his senses, and he kind of prepares this speech he has for this father. He prepares the speech because he's feeling insecure, not sure if he belongs anymore, not sure if he's safe. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's got that. Luke 15, verse 18 carries that out. And he does that speech, and he's all prepared. And he goes, and later on, say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And before he's able to even get out the words, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, The father stops him, embraces him, hugs him, weeps over him, kisses him, gives him his sandals, gives him the ring, throws him a party. What do we see? Abundant mercy, visceral compassion, safety that leads to change. In fact, one of the reasons I'm convinced We don't see repentance as normal. We don't see repentance as more normal in our lives. 
In our, instead, it's always, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I'm trying my best. Listen to the words you say to yourself and to others. What do those words reflect? If we trusted more in the character of God, wouldn't it lead to what we see in the second point, and that is the brutal honesty of repentance. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Isn't it interesting? He says, my, I know my transgressions. Do you know your sin? And notice the text doesn't say, do you acknowledge your sin? This is not, yeah, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I acknowledge total depravity. I acknowledge I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, this says, do you know your sin? Do you know the dynamics of how your heart works? To quote Calvin again, he says, nearly all true knowledge consists of this, knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. Later on, verse 6, David will pray, pray, surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire wisdom. You teach wisdom in the secret heart. That means if I am growing, I am discovering myself. I'm discovering how my heart works. I'm discovering why I do what I do. I'm discovering the dynamics, almost like the pistons of an engine, how they work. I'm discovering how my heart works to cause me to behave. Behavior is never in a vacuum. Are you growing? Are you knowing? Can you say what they See, this is true repentance where David is going, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Michael Wilcock, again, writes of these verses. David knows them. He knows them only too well, for they are always there, a shameful waking nightmare now that the word of God has convicted him of them. Then because that word has turned him round, he sees no longer before him the glamour of the woman he stole, nor even beside him the innocence of the man he killed, but behind him the judgment of the God he had turned his back on. Far from saying it wasn't my fault, I couldn't help it, he feels all the more responsible, all the more ashamed." That leads him in verse 4 to say against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David here says that his sin is against God. Now there's a part of me, I want to ask you what you think as you read that. There's a part of me, I read that and I go, um, excuse me, what about Uriah? He's only dead. Didn't David sin against Uriah, the dead guy? Or Bathsheba? The woman whose life he abused and he ruined, what about them? Don't they count? And there's something we need to see, again, about the dynamics of sin and the corruption of sin that it causes. And that is that when we sin against people, image bearers of God, we are sinning against God. There's an interesting kind of parallel, illustration, example in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, you have Saul. Before he became converted and before he became the Apostle Paul, Saul was going around persecuting the church. In chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's Saul. Hi, are you home? Come with me. Hi, are you home? Come and he's taking them all. He's persecuting the church. He's hurting and abusing people. 
Then in chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus, and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, whenever you are hurting people, you are hurting him. And on the flip side, whenever we're hurt, whenever we're afflicted, whenever we suffer, whenever we go through any sort of trial, if we're in Christ, we're not alone. What happens to us happens to Jesus. What we experience, physical pain, emotional pain, turmoil, turbulence in our life, happens to Jesus. That's why Paul, from prison, again in the book of Colossians, says, for I am filling up in my flesh what is still lacking, what is still incomplete, what is still yet unfinished about the sufferings of Christ. And we know that that is not the redemptive sufferings of Christ. For those, he said, it is finished. But we're so quick, usually, in our teaching to go, it can't be this, remember it's not this, that we forget there's a positive teaching behind this. That this is part of the Word of God that is useful to actually do something in our lives. And what it's useful to do is to encourage the suffering that what you go through, Jesus goes through, right with you. Every rejection, every betrayal, every physical pain. When the people of God hurt, Jesus hurts. He's right there. And David somehow viscerally knows this because he says, against you, I have destroyed image bearers, people of dignity, people that you have created to bear my likeness. I have sinned against my creator. True repentance is brutally honest, which is why David says in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Derek Kidner writes, the new perspective on his sin, as self-assertion against God, opens up a new self-knowledge. This crime David now sees was no freak event. It was in character an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprang from. This ought to teach us something about ourselves and about others. One of the things we have to remember, I've been listening recently to a PCA pastor by the name of Greg Thompson. Greg Thompson says, we have to recognize we are always creatures of glory and creatures of shame. And he says, one of the things we have to realize is that each and every one of us, every human being on the face of the planet is creatures of glory because they've been created by God. They've been created as an overflow of God's love to receive God's love, to participate in God's love, and to extend God's love. But that they're also creatures of shame. Creatures of shame that have corrupted that love because they've loved lesser loves. They're disordered and distorted in their minds and in their hearts. So they love things less than they love the living God. And then Dr. Thompson goes on to say, because we're all creatures of glory and creatures of shame, we ought to be dealing with fellow creatures of glory and shame in the most gentle and tender of ways. You always deal with a fellow creature of glory and shame with gentleness 
and tenderness. Not being surprised by their sin because you're not surprised by your own sin. It was always there. What David is saying here when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, that adultery, that murder was always in his heart. It crept up to his experience then. We should never be surprised by our sin, and we should never be surprised by the sin of somebody else. So where is the hope? Repentance is not meant to beat us up. Don't stay in that sight and sorrow and hatred of sin. Recognize that, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it is always God's kindness that leads us and is meant to lead us to repentance. And why? Because God's goal is always life and repentance restores life. In verse 10, David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create is something only God can do, right? Isn't God the creator? We're creatures. So what is he doing? He's saying, give me a new disposition. If in praise and in hymns I'm oriented and in sin I'm disoriented, he's saying, recreate me, reorient me, give me a disposition towards life. Renew in me a steadfast, a right spirit. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And here as we look, we see the fruit of repentance. That repentance restores life and we see that what it restores is basically holistic love. Love for God, love for others, and love for our community. Look with me at verse 15. First of all, true love for God is the fruit of worship. Notice David prays, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The worship the sacrifice, he's speaking in a little bit of hyperbole here because later on he's going to talk about he does like offerings and sacrifice. But here he's saying, you want to know what a true sacrifice is? You want to know what the true heart that's important to God is? It's cultivating brokenness. It's recognizing none of us relate to God, relate to ourselves, relate to others, and relate to the world rightly. We've all been corrupted by sin. And God is restoring life, and it leads us to cultivating brokenness, bringing our brokenness to God, for God to heal, for God to restore. It leads us to the wonder of grace. If there is not a wonderment in grace, look at your repentance. The fruit of repentance in David's life is, O Lord, open my lips that I may sing like with the hymn writer John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That is by the slave trader, John Newton, who upon repentance and forgiveness sings, and we still sing today, of amazing grace. If your lips are closed, maybe you're not functionally experiencing forgiveness. Then it leads to love for others. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And this is not in a condescending sort of way. Well, I've been saved, I was blind, and now I see, and I'm the expert. Let me show you how it's... This is a beggar coming to another beggar, saying, I've received bread, are you hungry? Would you like to receive bread? This is fueled with sensitivity and compassion, entering into the life of other. 
David didn't stop being a sinner. He went as a fellow sinner and taught other sinners the ways of God. And then it led for love for his community. Verse 18, do good to Zion. Grace will always have you looking outward. Grace will always take your nose out of your belly button and have you looking outward at other people. David's prayer is do good to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Love the city that I'm part of. Love the people of God that I'm part of. How is all this fulfilled? It's only fulfilled through Jesus Christ. The ground of our repentance is the fulfilling of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. See, when David prays and pleads with God to cleanse him from his sin, to wash him thoroughly, how is that possible? The animal sacrifices were only kind of a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of that. The ultimate fulfillment came in the cross of Jesus Christ. When verse 7 seeks for God to purge him with hyssop, it's an interesting Hebrew word that's used there, the closest synonym. For that particular word, purge, is the word de-sin. De-sin me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The great English poet John Donne, in his sermon, said of this prayer, of this verse, Thou shalt unsin me. That is, look upon me as man that had never sinned. Even though this psalm is a lament that speaks of our depravity, it certainly doesn't leave us there, does it? If our focus all the time is depravity, 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 and we're never leading people to restored glory, we're missing the point. The point is to see that repentance restores life. Descend me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. In Christ, God looks upon us as a people who have been unsinned. How glorious is that? Father, I pray that we would hear and receive the good news. Continue to purge us with hyssop. Wash us, and we will be clean. Wash us whiter than snow, that we may open our lips and sing your praise. Help us to receive your love, participate in your love, that we may extend your love to one another and to a lost and dying world. Apply your word to us by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.